If you're on trial and charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? For the last um, few months, we've been learning about the long-anticipated return of Christ. Right? For those who are visiting us, what we've been doing is we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We started at Matthew chapter 1, we've been going and going and going and going, and we've been at it for well over a year now. Um, and so in this section of Matthew, we've been learning a lot about the return of Jesus Christ. And, and of course, this is more of it today. He's talking about when he returns. And this reveals to us something else about Jesus. When Jesus returns, he's not only coming as saviour, he's also coming as judge. Now, if you think about how a judge operates in our society today, there's a whole bunch of stuff that they have to take into account and consider. And one of those things is confession and another one is evidence. So somebody who's on trial may very well profess their innocence or they occasionally confess their guilt. Um, And for us, it's very important what we confess. It's very important that for us to proclaim and confess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't ever forget to do that. That is just so important. Um, Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 10, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Don't don't think for a moment that your faith is a private thing that you can just keep all to yourself. It's very important for for you and for I to confess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that it's actually okay to be proud of. We sort of have it beat into us, you know, pride's an ugly thing. Well, you are actually allowed to be proud of Jesus and you are allowed to tell people about Jesus. In fact, we should be. And so what we confess, what we own up to believing, is important. But the physical evidence is also important. If you're charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? True disciples of Jesus Christ, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, live by kingdom values. And that's the evidence. Over the last few years, there's been a fair bit of talk about what it means to be Australian. Um, you know, we, we seem to be a nation who seems to have an identity crisis, a bit of a struggle with who we are. And so there's a fair bit of discussion about what it actually means to be an Australian and, and around who should be allowed to become an Australian citizen. And, and so in that discussion, they've talked a fair bit about Australian values. Now, if I would ask you, what are Australian values, what would you say? There's a pop quiz. Name some Australian values. Mateship, who said that? Yep, yep. What else? Supporter of the underdog. Supporter of the underdog, yeah. What else? Fair go. Fair go. Speak English. Yep, yep. Okay. Now, some of the ones that I remember the politicians throwing at us, you know, these are Australian values. Mateship equality, a fair go, loyalty. Now, you know, every time I hear the politicians talking about these Australian values of mateship, equality and a fair go, I sort of have a bit of a chuckle to myself because how many of us actually really model those values? 
And, of course, when it comes to politicians, they're very often the least likely to model them. And so I'd say these so-called Australian values of mateship, equality, a fair go, are really nothing more than wishful thinking. Or maybe they're an ideal that that we as a nation would like to think was a part of who we were. Um, Maybe they're a part of how we'd like to to think that the other nations look at us. You know, say like, they'll know we're Australians because of our mateship. They'll know we're Australians because of our equality. They'll know we're Australians because we always give somebody else a fair go. What a load of rot. I'm I'm sorry if that's shaken your image of what an Australian is, but I'm saying that's a load of rot. Because really, yeah, I'm all for mateship as long as it's somebody that I like. And it's all okay for for equality, and I'm very happy for equality, as long as I don't have to be equal with somebody who's got less than me. I'm very happy to be equal with Clive Palmer, but I don't want to be equal with someone who's got less than me. And we're always willing to give somebody a fair go as long as they don't get in our way. So much for Australian values. But we have another citizenship that is a very, very important citizenship. It's more important than our Australian citizenship. Now, Australian citizenship is important, don't get me wrong. It's very important for Christians to be good citizens in the nation in which they live. But we have another citizenship that's even more important than that, and that's citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what values define citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Can we have some answers to that one? What values are values of the kingdom of heaven? What values define the disciples of Jesus Christ? Faith? Yes. Obedience? Yes. Trust? Yes. Love others as you would love yourself? Yes. Love God. Okay, Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you tell them you're a Christian. Is that what he said? No. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a fish sticker on the back of your car. No. How about if you wear a cross around your neck and carry a great big heavy book around? Is that how people know that we're disciples of Jesus? Can anyone fill the sentence in for me? By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. Yeah. Jake, we might need to click on a little bit, don't we? Yeah, there we are. And also, I'm going to throw in the fruit of the Spirit there. A fair bit of what you guys just threw up there was the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, reading from verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, if you understand that, then you understand the example 
of the sheep and the goats. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It's okay for a bunch of Australians to be a bunch of hypocrites. It's not okay for a bunch of Christians to be a bunch of hypocrites. Because if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You see, disciples of Jesus Christ don't only share with Christ in his eternal glory. I mean, we're looking forward to that. There's something that comes before that. Disciples of Jesus Christ also share with Christ in his suffering. They also share with Christ in his love and in his compassion, not just for ourselves, not just for our own families, but really for all humanity. And especially in love and compassion for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this love and compassion must, not maybe, must translate into action. When Jesus returns, he's, he's going to draft us up. Now, any of you who have done a bit of sheep work know very well what sheep drafting looks like. It's probably a little bit different to how they did it back in Jesus' day. But some of you don't know what that looks like. So, I've, courtesy of YouTube, I've pulled the, pulled the video clip off of what sheep drafting looks like. Nice looking to see you, yards there. Yeah. Now, um, to, to a lot of people, you, you probably can't see any different in those she- difference in those sheep. But he's obviously the fellow who's doing the draft and can tell the difference. And he's that's actually a um, three-way draft that's happening there. Now, that's like what Jesus is going to do. He's going to put some on his left and some on his right. Now, that as I said, that's a three-way drafting race. And a lot of us would like to think that there's always going to be a third option, uh, but there is no third option. Sorry, folks. It's going to be a two-way draft for us. Um, And that's the way it very often is with God. It it seems just like there is only two options. And um, so there's light versus darkness. There's sheep versus goats. There's there's the inside and the outside. There's life and death. There's heaven and there's hell. It's a two-way draft. The righteous will be blessed and inherit the kingdom of God. And the rest are going to be cursed and go into, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, it can't be any more stark than that. Um, this is very important, don't you think, that we, when, when the draft happens that we go get sent down the right chute? Yeah? I think it's pretty important. It's not only important that we get down the right chute, I, I think it's very important that all you lot go down the right chute. And, and it makes me think about my neighbour that I live with. It, it lived next to, you know, it's very important that when the draft takes place that they go the right direction. So, what does it mean? Um, we, we call this a parable, um, but it, it's actually more of an example that Jesus gives. Like a parable is where Jesus would tell a story and then he sort of just leaves you with the story and you work out what it means. But this is actually more of an example. He actually tells us what it means. 
He says the separation is going to be like when a shepherd separates out the sheep from the goats and then he tells us exactly what the separation means. So what basis does this draft take place? Let me tell you, there's been a lot of scholarly ink spilt over this one. There's a lot of people who do not like this passage of scripture. And the reason they don't like like it is because it really messes with their theology. It messes with their nice little neat box that they've got God in. It messes with their nice little neat picture of how they think God is going to act. Now, um, I'm a Protestant. I'm a strong Bible-believing Protestant. Um, and people like me and strong Calvinists really have a bit of trouble with it because it hints at being saved by works. And of course the great cry of the Reformation was saved by grace alone, saved by faith alone. And this can really mess with your theology because it's painfully obvious from what Jesus says here that it also depends on what we do. But then there's modern liberals who you'd think, well, they'll really love this because it's very strongly talking about social action and doing good works. But they don't like it either because it talks a fair bit about judgment and hell and they cannot bring themselves to believe in a God who's going to send anyone to hell. And so a lot of people have trouble with this passage of scripture. Now, do you know how to tell when somebody doesn't like what the Bible's saying? If they're liberals, they'll just ignore it. Because when they read the Bible, they read the Bible with a pair of scissors in their hand and they just cut out all the bits that they don't like and they'll just say, oh, that's just a product of its day, we don't have to worry about that anymore and we just cut it out and, and ignore it. But if we consider ourselves good Bible-believing Christians, do you know how we usually get around bits that we don't like of the Bible? Hey, read them again. Unfortunately, most often we come up with some kind of really complex argument to try and explain away what the Bible is actually very clearly saying. But if we truly love God and if we truly love his word, then we should allow ourselves to be changed by God and to be changed by his word. Never let your theology get in the way of what God is saying in the Bible. The Bible is meant to, to shape our theology. The, the word theology is basically our thinking about God, by the way. Okay, Ology is study of um, theos God. Okay, So let the Bible shape your understanding about God. Sometimes we, we have to, don't forget, but put in place what we've been taught and listen very carefully to what God is saying in the scriptures. What does Jesus Christ very clearly say here? Now it's not difficult. The only difficulty that we have is if we have a wrong idea about God and grace and salvation. The only difficulty is if we have trouble accepting what the Bible is very clearly saying. So let's not explain it away. Let's accept the challenge that Christ is is throwing down to us here in a very real way. On Judgment Day, there will be a separation. 
And we know from, from other passages in the scripture and stuff that we've been studying over the last few weeks, we know that this separation is going to be based primarily on our faith in Christ. But what we cannot escape from today's reading is this is also very strongly linked to what we do. There are going to be goats in the sheep paddock, as, as Uncle Marty shared this morning. The sheep and the goats run together and... and um, and there's going to be a great separation. Now, the goats probably think they're sheep, but they're not sheep. And there will be people in the church who claim to be Christians, but they're not. They are not disciples of Jesus Christ because they're not followers of Jesus Christ. Disciples follow. Disciples take on the nature of their master. I heard somebody talking on the Christian radio the other day and he said we're not to be an inspector of, as Christians we shouldn't be gift inspectors but we should be fruit inspectors. Now I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. The teaching of the church in so many areas is like a pendulum. So if we think of God's truth being somewhere in the middle but it sort of swings from the left to the right and back again. Now, and there's a reason for this. Most people, particularly people who are not Christians, people out in the world, have a very wrong concept of what it means to be a Christian. Um, they have a very misunderstanding concept of being saved by grace. They just don't get it. Now, I hope you lot do get the concept of being saved by grace because we talk about it a lot here. But most people out in the world think it's all about what they do. If I'm good enough, then I'll get to heaven. If I do enough good things that might outweigh the bad things that I've done, which aren't actually that bad anyway, then, yep, I'll get to heaven. Now, that's their idea of what it means to be a Christian. Um, It's what we call being saved by works. I'm saved by what I do. Um, And likewise, many people are left with the feeling, well, I can never be a Christian because I'm just not good enough. And once I get good enough, then I'll start coming to church and and then maybe I can be a Christian. Well, you'll never get there. And so their understanding is way over here. And so we Bible teachers, well, we've got to try and get them to get this understanding of what it means to be saved by grace. And so we bring the teaching right over here and we concentrate our teaching on being saved by grace alone. Because I can never be good enough. Christ died for sinners. He died for me. Yes, you are a sinner. Don't ever think that you're not. And that makes you exactly the person that Christ died for. And the only way that we can be saved is to receive Jesus Christ as our Saviour. And so we bring the message right over here. But by bringing the pendulum right over here, by saying it's not by anything that I do, it's entirely about what Christ does, we've actually missed something. And that word is repentance. And repentance isn't just something we do in our minds. Repentance is an activity. Repentance is something we actually do. When John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, the people actually came to him and they asked him, well, what does this look like? What does it mean? 
And he answered and he said, whoever has two coats is to share one with, sorry, share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. And then tax collectors came to be baptised and they said, well, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorised to do. See, these are doing things. These are actions, positive actions that they were to take as part of their repentance. And he said, well, do not extort, sorry, don't take any more than you're authorised to do. Then the soldiers came and asked, what should we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Repentance was actually an activity. It was actually changes that were going to be made in their lives. Repentance is an active thing. We are not saved by doing good works, but we are saved to do good works. We are saved away from how we were to become like Christ. When you feed the hungry, you feed Christ. When you give drink to the thirsty, you're giving a drink to Christ. When you give clothes to the naked, you clothe Christ. When you visit the sick or the prisoner, you visit Christ. Now, these few things aren't just a checklist that we have to tick off on our bucket list. Right? You know what a bucket list is? bucket list is all those things we want to do before we kick the bucket. Okay? Now, that's not just things we have to tick off. These are examples of living a life of repentance and, and these are examples of living in the grace that Christ has given us. And it goes way beyond those few examples. It, it, it takes over your whole life. It becomes a whole new way of living. We could just as easily say, when you time, spend time with the lonely, you spend it with Christ. When you house the homeless, when you transport the cripple, when you teach the illiterate to read, when you provide for the orphan, you do these things for guess who? You're doing it for Christ. Now the flip side of that is the scary side. When you don't do them, when you ignore the hungry, when you ignore the thirsty, when you ignore the needy, when you ignore the sick or the prisoner, the homeless or the cripple, when you shun the lonely, we've done it to Christ. Disciples of Jesus follow him in his ways. We are not saved by doing good things, but once we are saved, we are saved to become like Christ. We are saved to begin to do these good things. Now I've got a friend who restores old tractors and he travels around Australia um, looking for certain types of old tractors and when he finds one sitting out in a paddock, maybe with a wilga tree growing up through the middle of it, he goes and strikes a deal with the, with the farmer who owns the thing. He brings his truck, loads it onto the truck, takes it home and puts it in his shed. Now, for many of us, that's our idea of what Christ does for us. He He finds us like we're just pieces of rubbish and he takes us, he buys us back and brings us into his kingdom. Brings us into his grace. And many of us think, right, the job's done. That's it. 
job's not done. Do you think my mate is content for that tractor in his shed now to just stay old and rusty and fallen apart and broken down and and tyres all perished and busted? He then sets about to transform them. He strips it down. Some parts need to be thrown away and get replaced with new parts. Some parts need to be machined down and built up and machined back into place again. Some parts get taken right back to bare metal and then finally the whole thing gets taken right back to bare metal and it gets a fresh, new, shiny coat of paint and he gets it running and he tunes it up and the project just never seems to end. There's always some little adjustment or some little tune-up that's needed to keep the thing running sweet. Now that is what we're like with God. God doesn't save us to stay as we were. God wants to work his transformation inside of us. And on Judgment Day there's going to be a lot of people who say to Jesus, hey, we said the sinner's prayer, but somehow we got on the wrong side of the draft. And Jesus will say, you weren't changed. Where was me in you? Where is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Your faith was not accompanied by my works. Now that's what that passage is clearly saying. James chapter 2 verse 14 onwards sums it up. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to him, oh, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let me make this very clear one more time. Works alone will not save you. You can do all of the very best great humanitarian things in the world. It will not save you. It is by faith that we are saved. But faith without works is dead. It has to be a living faith. Your faith has to be alive. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Friends, there's something that I can promise you that is never going to weigh, not go away, not this side of glory anyway, and that is the battle that rages within. Before you became a Christian, there was probably not much of a battle inside of you because the flesh ruled your life. But when you became a Christian and the Holy Spirit of God moved into your heart, it's sort of like you've got a new roommate and the two roommates don't get on with one another. The flesh and the spirit are always at war with one another. There's two residents that just don't get on. And the Apostle Paul talks about it in terms of the opposition between the flesh and the spirit. And every day... In almost every situation you find yourself in, there's going to be a couple of choices set before you. 
and we have to decide, am I going to be led by the flesh or am I going to be led by the Spirit? Because the Spirit will be urging you to live by the Spirit. The Spirit will be urging you to give to the needy. But the flesh is going to say, hey, don't do that, you need that. How are you going to retire comfortably if you give that away to the needy now? The Spirit is going to urge you to to care for the oppressed. But the flesh is going to say, why are you worried about them? You've got enough worries of your own. The Spirit is going to urge you to love the unlovely. Spend time with the lonely. And the flesh will be saying, no, no, you stick your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 and you just shut yourself off from all of that. You don't have to worry about that. You worry about yourself. The Spirit is saying, love, care, give, share. Forgive, humble yourself, visit, give time, show peace, show love. Be transformed. Live by faith and act in faith. That's the life of a sheep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your holy calling. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us from our sin. And that you've saved us to something better. Lord, I'm really challenged by this story of the sheep and the goats. Because Lord, I know in so many ways, so many times, I have blocked my ears to the cries of the needy. I've closed up my heart, I've closed up my wallet, I've closed off my love. So, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. And, Lord, we thank you that this is not an unforgivable sin. We thank you, Lord, that you forgive us of all unrighteousness. But, Lord, the Bible reading today throws down a very strong and clear challenge that we are to live like Christ to live lives of love, never closing our ear or our eyes against those who need love, who need care, who need food, who need so much, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would work your transformation in us. Lord, give us a resolve to to actively work with you in this. That your Holy Spirit, Lord, would give us the love for others that, that Christ has. And that we would demonstrate that love in very real and practical ways. And Lord, we pray for the lost in our community. And Lord, we pray 
that you would give us the wisdom to be able to share with the lost. That we would be able to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with all those around us. Calling them to follow Christ also. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Joy. Oh, there you are. Surprise. <laughs> How'd you get that?